American Social History Podcasts are a production of the American Social History Project, Center for Media and Learning at the City University of New York Graduate Center. Historians have been researching the experiences of women in the Civil War for over 30 years, and of course, a few accounts go back much further. With the first burst of women's history, inspired as it was by second-wave feminism and the drive to include women in historical narratives, we delighted in the accounts of remarkable women who transgressed social norms, took enormous personal risks to defend their politics, and assumed new positions in society and underscored the value of their labors. Many histories of women's lived experiences during the war at the home fronts and the war fronts tended towards the celebratory, the profiling of courageous women who ventured to war fronts, assumed nursing nursing roles, acted as spies, and cross-dressed as soldiers. We found new heroines and glimpsed new ways to appreciate the war as more than a military event. As the study of women in history became enriched by feminist theory and seeing gender as an important category of analysis, we learned that it was critical to go beyond the women's lived experiences to grasp how the war itself was constructed as a gendered event that recapitulated existing ideologies about difference and expressed anxieties about the upending of racial and gender hierarchies that the war portended. We've learned an enormous amount about the ways in which women transformed home fronts, took on new political identities, and challenged male preserves of power. We also learned that American women, white and African American, free and enslaved, rich and poor, were affected by the war in markedly different ways. Middle class and elite women sometimes discovered their own capacities for organizational and reform work and tied such experiences to potential changes in gender relations. But for the majority of women, the war was less a liberating space for personal agency than a catastrophic event that befell their lives. While many sustained home fronts with prodigious labors and personal sacrifices, appeal to local governments, relief agencies, and their richer counterparts for resources to sustain their families, their struggles were less about a place in the war or post-war narratives. For poorer and rural women in particular, their work was initiated not by politics or patriotic ardor, but the demands of survival. Wars can be radicalizing events, accelerating social changes and movements begun earlier. They also have the capacity to make visible what was heretofore obscure. Women's interests in antebellum politics and the intense events that pulled the nation apart became readily apparent when the war broke out, although, of course, they were there before. White, middle-class, and elite women in both regions welcomed the opportunity to express their politics and devise their own expressions of patriotism. We know less about the initial responses of working-class and rural women, but we know that they explained their labors and their rights in the language of war sacrifice. African-American women, both enslaved and free, understood the war's revolutionary potential from the outset. Black soldiers, the majority of whom had been slaves, declared repeatedly that they were fighting for, quote, God, race, and country. And for those slaves who could not escape to northern regiments and remained on southern plantations and farms, Confederate leaders deemed them disloyal from the, from the start, as in fact they surely were. Apart from the beliefs and actions of actual women, however, an imaginary woman became central to patriotic projects. Americans on both sides of the conflict claimed at the outset that they were fighting to preserve the world as it was. For a a people, the vast majority of whom lived in household economies with little contact with the central government, the gender division of labor, family, and community represented the world as it was. 
From the outset of the conflict, northern narratives of selfless and tireless women energized by war and compelled by nature to minister to those in need served obvious military ends. But such characterizations of female behavior also formed part of a broader construction of northern nationalism. Women who redirected their household labors to advance nationalist purposes accomplished the perfect symbiosis of public and private arenas of production, the fulfillment of the antebellum gender division of labor. Images of support emanating from supposedly private homes by women who had no relation to partisan politics or the market played into a wartime discourse about the disinterestedness of northern patriotism. The imaginary patriotic woman may have been a way of rallying female support, uh, read unpaid female labor, but such narratives were also deployed for specific ends, sometimes against particular groups of women. Images of home front women were used to critique the enemy, as when the northern press denigrated unladylike secesh women when they rioted, or northern class working class women when they fought the draft. Women in drawings were also used to critique governments and the ways in which the their policies harmed women's lives, such as depictions of women as victims of inflation and war profiteering. Drew Faust and Stephanie McCurry have demonstrated that in the Confederacy, where the construction of a nationalism, obviously a brand new project, um, was an ongoing and difficult project, sentimentalized images of southern white womanhood carried much of the weight for defining the essence of a region based on white patriarchal rule. The ideal of female dependency shaped notions of Southern manhood and the Southern social hierarchy. And in referencing dependency, such images must have also invoked the dependency of slaves. Images of what McCory calls, quote, the political mother proliferated in secessionist discourse, the soil that gave birth to the male citizen, and woman as the symbol of property and white rights abounded. But the use of female imagery in the South was complex. Women as objects of protection were deployed by southern elites to persuade non-slaveholders of where their loyalty should lie. And the specter of rape was rampant in discourse about black Republicans, that's the term, of course, for any Republican, not African-American, seeking to pollute and dishonor the South. While the metaphor of rape was meant to imply the southern mother earth could be ravished, more often, it was white women's bodies that were supposedly at risk both from Republicans and their, and their uh, male slave allies. As McCory writes, quote, where the nation became a woman, the woman took on a national posture. One of the ironies of the Civil War was that notwithstanding, or perhaps in concert with, the elevation of the female as the embodiment of a cause, the source of all that was worth defending was that the demands made by real women went unheeded. Mythic womanhood did not translate into reciprocity between the sexes, nor protection for women's wartime needs. We have learned that peons to brave wives and caring women did not lead to greater equality. Women's wartime labors, the demands for their sacrifices, and the intrusion of government into their lives revealed the extent of their control over their households, but also the ways in which the war threatened those households. Both, at both the northern and southern home fronts, women's participation in war work, personal sacrifices, and militancy did not translate into greater political power, nor did their personal tragedies result in new forms of public respect. Though misty-eyed tributes to female valor, kindness, and generosity abounded in print images from pulpits and podiums, such portrayals invoked the formulaic contours of an essentialist ideology about gender difference. 
Such images expunged the conflicts between women and government and organizations like the United States Sanitary Commission. It erased women's authentic politics as well as their critiques of power and their critiques of war policy. Sentimentalized versions of womanhood wrote out those who experienced hunger, deprivation, and fear, as well as those who took up arms. And nationalist, nationalistic discourse invoking ideal woman or women meant that black women had to seek their own means of self-representation and to do so in opposition to white women. Nina Silver found that both unionists and confederates placed women, or at least a vision of womanhood, at the core of what they were fighting for. In this way, the Civil War was not different from any other war, the idea of fighting for home and country. But unlike later wars in which governments produced the gender-inflected propaganda images and slogans, in the 19th century, the market served up representations of women for general consumption. And Civil War soldiers on both sides carried with them personal mementos of the women they left behind. Of course, these were not World War II pinup girls, but photographs or daguerreotypes of wives, children, and mothers in best attire. Numerous engravings of, the, of a dying or resting soldier gazing longingly at a picture of a cherished female constructed a specific definition of male sacrifice, reminding viewers of the centrality of womanhood and the pure motives behind military strategies. Now I'm going to talk about the outbreak of the war. In ways only barely recognized at the outset of the conflict, the Civil War became a testing ground for the gendering of political rights. And that gendering, of course, had happened in the decades before the war. In the North, the identification of property and citizenship with men remained strong and arguably was even strengthened by the political rhetoric that gave rise to, to the Republican wartime state, a political party that came into existence with the slogan, free labor, free soil, free men, expressed a conspicuous set of assumptions about the relation of property, political power, and gender that were shared by all Northern men, regardless of party affiliation. Legal and social constraints on female economic autonomy all but guaranteed that free soil was meant for free men. And only if men were free to appropriate the labor of family members in support of household economies or under industrialization in support of the chief uh, wage laborer could they stand ready to take advantage of the opportunities that free soil might offer. When the war began, the federal government was ill-equipped to mobilize troops, money, or supplies. Northerners had to scramble to assemble an army in the face of a war department that was small and disorganized and had lost most of its most able military leaders to the Confederacy. But aiding mobilization was a, was a remarkable shift in political attitudes from a very fractious pre-war political landscape seemed to emerge a united patriotic front. In their wartime letters and memoirs, women made evident the meaning of the war in terms of their own inclusion. Quote, I enjoy public affairs now, wrote New Yorker Elizabeth Neal Gay in January of 1861, acknowledging that she hoped that the war would turn into a, quote, splendid revolution. In May of 1861, Mary Marsh of Brooklyn observed, quote, it takes all of my time to read the newspapers. When Jane Wolseley tried to explain to a friend the mood in New York City in, in 1861, she declined to offer her own political opinions, but added, quote, not in passing that I haven't any. We all have views now, men, women, and little boys. A Midwestern feminist paper, The Mayflower, reported in June 1861, quote, we read war, hear war, talk war, and write war. We have war for breakfast, lunch, and, dinner, and supper. 
In December of 1861, feminist Frances Dana Gage observed, quote, how feeble women have grown strong, selfish women philanthropic, giddy women assumed labors and duties unthought of before, and ambitious women found opportunities for gratifying aspirations. This, she declared, was what war was doing for women. But sometimes the analysis of what war might do for women was more calculated. In an 1862 piece called The Blessings of War, this same paper, the Mayflower, argued, quote, that the war is demonstrating the possibility of, the impossibility of always excluding the woman question from politics. The article's argument was not that women's labors earned them political rights, but rather access to real economic clout. With the likelihood of, as the paper called it, the widespread butchery of our adult male population, unquote, and the greater ease with which women will enter professions, women's chances for acquiring property had increased tremendously. Quote, property exerts influence, and influence controls politics, the paper reminded its readers, and urged them to take advantage of the 1862 Homestead Law to acquire property of their own. Gone were cliches about women's moral power, and here was a concrete market-based conception of the term influence. When the ultimate gesture of political obligation, however, was military service, offering one's life in, for the preservation of the state, more than a few women chat, chafed at the constraints imposed on their sex. As soon as the war began, Louisa May Alcott confided in her diary, quote, I long to be a man, but as I can't fight, I will content myself with working for those who can. Another woman, another who devoted, who devoted herself to war relief reasoned, quote, for what else can we women do at such a time as this? A southern woman expressed, quote, I wish I had a field for my energies, that there is real tragedy, real romance, and history weaving every day. I suffer, suffer, leading the life I do, unquote. Of course, we know of hundreds of women who did disguise themselves as men and joined the military. Estimates are between 400 and 1,000 female soldiers served in the Union Army, and perhaps 100 to 250 um, in the Confederate. Er early post-war commemorations of the war had profound difficulties in acknowledging these cross-dressed women soldiers. Some dismissed them as, as just lower class origins, of, of lower class origins, and others insisted that their duties at the war front really were quite feminine in nature. But the fact and uh, the image of violent armed women posed a distinct problem during the war as well. And noth nothing contradicted the construct of pure womanhood more. In 1863, southern cities, most famously Richmond, Virginia, was were racked as women waged food riots. As Stephanie McCurry recounted, um, mobs of women in broad daylight, sometimes numbering in the hundreds, armed with revolvers, pistols, repeaters, bowie knives, and hatchets, carried out at least 12 violent attacks on stores, government houses, army convoys, railroad depots, salt works, and granaries. The food riots gave stark visibility to the breakdown of household economies, real hunger and desperation, and women's challenges to a wartime government that they felt had abridged a social contract. And of course, in the New York City draft riots of 1863, some women fought to protect racialized urban spaces threatened by emancipation. In the North, conservative women were deemed, by dangerous, deemed dangerous by both Lincoln and the Republicans. Unruly women were the most visible of their ranks, but other women who identified themselves as copperheads, meaning favoring the Democratic Party, portended ongoing political problems, certainly for Lincoln. As Southern women rioted in 
first in New Orleans earlier and in Richmond, northern dissenters were cast as, quote, she-devils in the New York press, covering a Copperhead rally in 1863, the day, in fact, the day before the Richmond bread riot, the northern press focused on the women in attendance. To combat this, a group of Republican women formed the National Women's Loyal League to organize northern women's political loyalties. And none other than Elizabeth Cady Stanton addressed a Loyal League meeting with the warning that since countless women were facing a future of having to support themselves after the war, it was incumbent upon them to defend the, quote, best government on earth. Northern elite women took their cues from southern women who, though they disparaged them as fiendish in their support of slavery, nevertheless they admired them for their fighting spirit. For the majority of women in both sections, patriotism did not involve violence, but symbolism and work. They invented an array of material objects to signal their loyalties and to rouse others. In the production of uniforms, flags, bonnets, and dresses, women applied the mastery of domestic arts to political uses. In both the North and the South, flags became something described by contemporaries as a mania, making homemade flags, drawing flags, wearing and displaying flags, provided countless women with a means of symbolic patriotism. In the absence of any standardized uh, uniforms at the, at the outset of the war, women also felt free to improvise garments of their own creations. And the result was that army uniforms appeared in every sort of material from broadcloth to satinette. The resulting mixture of styles and colors occasionally created confusion on the battlefield. The sense of possibility that attended women's support of the Union grew out of a particular conditions of northern mobilization predicated on the voluntary enlistment of soldiers and the freely offered support of their communities. Due to the customary American reliance on voluntary troops and citizen militias and the absence of mandatory conscription policies, the Union Army was largely constructed through individual acts of volunteerism. In such a context, women constituted a wellspring for supplies and labor. Anxious to convey loyalty to the cause, and in the case of middle class and elite women, accustomed to handling the welfare needs of others, they reacted to the outbreak of war by refocusing their established sewing and church groups and charitable groups to meeting military requirements. Um, and that's where they created the thousands of local soldiers' aid societies dedicated to the war emergency. While women in, in remote villages and small cities mobilized themselves to outfit troops and provide supplies, believing their labors translated into real assistance to the war effort, stories began to surface that their energies were in fact producing an opposite effect. By rumor and hearsay, accounts of useless clothing, ill-fitting uniforms, spoiled food, and overstocked hospital supplies flowed from military camps and hospitals back to the home front. As Mary Livermore wrote in her post-war memoir, quote, baggage cars were soon flooded with fermenting sweetmeats and broken pots of jelly, decaying fruit and vegetables, pastry and cake in a demoralized condition. Badly canned meats and soups were necessarily thrown away en route. But more than the cakes were demoralized. Hearing of such accounts, as well as of persistent deficiencies plaguing the War Department, a group of professional and upper-class New York City women concluded that the lack of coordination among relief efforts threatened to efface the considerable labors that women had undertaken. While hoping to improve the impact of home front contributions, these women also perceived an opportunity for supervising an unprecedented female intervention in the war. The woman most responsible for promoting a plan for centrally organized war relief 
was Dr. Elizabeth Blackwell, the first woman to receive a medical degree in America. She initiated the formation of an umbrella group, the Women's Central Relief Association, that would serve local soldiers' aid societies by acting as a depot for their don donations and a clearinghouse for information. The Women's Association was hardly in operation, however, when the Reverend Henry Whitney Bellows stepped forward um, to create a separate male-run organization. And within two weeks of the association's founding, Bellows and a party of well-known New York physicians traveled to Washington where, he later claimed, the idea of a federally sanctioned National Commission was born. In its ambitious scheme for mobilizing the female home front into a disciplined entity, ready to answer any and all demands for hospital supplies, the United States Sanitary Commission was born and proposed to remove from those who donated control over the, over the destination and uses of their gifts. With the appearance of the commission and its attempt to direct all contributions to the Army, Northern women faced a threat to their relatively meager and locally based positions of social power. The war escalated the capacity of men to exercise control and authority over female labor, moving from simply claiming ownership of such labor in the home to claiming hegemony over it for the nation. Even though bourgeois women um, were hailed as the moral guardians of an increasingly corrupt and commercial society, when it really mattered, benevolence could not be left to women. The men who created the commission never anticipated that for the greater part of the war, their energies would be occupied by persuade, trying to persuade Northern women to participate in their project. Based on their observations of women's desires to, protect, uh, to participate in mobilization, and assuming such labor was natural and instinctive, they were unprepared for the problems that lay ahead. They assumed that it would be relatively easy to manipulate the non-political arenas of feminized benevolence to serve their own masculinized versions of nationhood. It was not. By the middle of the war, women's resistance to the commission's centralized welfare plan had mushroomed into full-blown allegations that the organization was a fraud, a ruse perpetrated by scheming men bent on selling women's homemade gifts for profit. And throughout the North, women recounted stories of soldiers being forced to pay for donated supplies, of sanitary agents lining their own pockets with the value of, household, of donated supplies, of household labor. Not only were these rumors serious, char serious charges, but nearly every community appeared to have received virtually identical accounts of commission deceit. Shifting gears, I'm going to talk now, though, about poorer and rural women. For these women in the North, as well as in the South, but in the North, the war was a very different experience. Their marginalization was felt in real economic terms as they found it difficult to support their families. Without their names on property leases or the rights to contract, with little contact with banks and financial institutions, and the inability to command living wages, tens of thousands of Northern women experienced the war as ones of deprivation and economic insecurity. As inflation surged and profiteering more evident, new images of women as the impoverished victims of wartime profiteering became political tools, certainly by the Democratic Party. Union soldiers struggled from a distance to provide financial aid and advise, and advise their wives, all the while ceding decision-making power to those women. Many sent their soldiers pay home, and for countless wives and mothers, these monthly allotments were all that sustained home front families. As you know, for most of the war, uh, a Union soldier made $11 a month, and then it went up to $13. It was quite uh, meager even then. In, recount, in, in recounting incredible stories of poorer rural women with husbands at the war front, um, 
Judith Geisberg argues that the war provoked ongoing family crises. In rural economies where home and work were located in the same space, what, what ruptured one strained the other. Given that one half of all Civil War soldiers were, were farmers and one third were married, the removal of men from the household economy required tens of thousands, if not more, women to take on field work, sustain production, fight for husbands' wages, agonize over the payment of taxes, and confront local officials. Many women turned to the government to find jobs, to secure fair wages, and most to get relief. Though sometimes embarrassed by having to apply to agencies associated with poor relief before the war, these marginal women also calculated that such relief was a just entitlement. If the government could take their husbands, that same government owed their families recompense. While many received some relief, northern, while many white women received some relief, Northern African American were usually barred from such largesse. Poor women devised numerous strategies to sustain their households and their children, including tending gardens, selling produce, taking in borders, putting children to work, working on others' farms, and taking paid factory work. Some became uh, visible in professional work, primarily as teachers. More common was the expansion of factory jobs. The Northern Army required a vast array of goods that would have to be manufactured at the home front, and more than 100,000 factory um, sewing and arsenal jobs became available to Northern women during the war. The demand for seamstresses in particular mushroomed to meet the military's requirements for bedding and uniforms. Most of these women were poorly paid, beholden to the exploitative system of subcontracting. Seamstresses in New York City saw a decline in their wages from 17.5 cents per shirt in 1861 to 8 cents per shirt in 1864. Cincinnati women complained that while contractors took in, uh, took in $1.75 per dozen gray woolen shirts, they paid their stitchers only a dollar per dozen. And as you read today in the chapter from uh, Geisberg's book, um, you know, obviously a lot of these poor women, particularly in cities and towns, become almost internal refugees right, within the northern home front and seeking aid and lodging, whether it was asylums, prisons, wherever. I want to switch gears now and look at the Confederacy. Drew Faust and Stephanie McCurry have demonstrated, as I said, that this construction of nationalism was difficult. The Confederate government was voracious in its demands for food, clothing, and manufactured goods. As the war progressed, its demand for household foodstuffs, animals, and tools produced anger that eventually took the form of mass desertion from the Confederate army. The northern blockade and invasion strangled the Confederacy and the South's economy, and housewives had to scrimp and improvise as more consumer items disappeared. Historian George Rabel record, uh, recounts the, the words of one Arkansas woman who observed, quote, I never realized the varied needs of civilization. Every day, something is out. Scarcity, hunger, and deprivations began early and were widespread, sparing no woman, regardless of social status. Southern women who had never thought about prices began recording the cost of everything in their diaries and letters. Shortages complicated the simplest household tasks, disrupting daily life. For the more privileged, corralling decent clothing was the key to maintaining some level of respectability. After a cousin lent her a linen nightgown, Eliza Andrews revealed and in, reveled in an almost forgotten luxury, quote, I was so overpowered at having on a decent piece of underclothing after the coarse homespun I've been wearing for the last two years that, could, that I could hardly go to sleep, unquote. 
Women who had never touched a needle suddenly made sewing an obsession. But inflation in the South was unrelenting, and the price of cloth skyrocketed. In the fall of 1863, Josephine Habersham refused to pay $195 for a dress that had cost $9 two years earlier. Even as Southern industry expanded, it did so to meet the needs of the army. The domestic economy became more primitive, reverting back to methods not used for generations. Spinning wheels, looms, carding and spinning of cotton became common sights, and the poor found their skills much in demand. The most painful shortages, of course, were those of food. By 1862, food shortages in the South were common, and after 1863, hunger was real and cut across class lines. Kate Stone served family and guests a steady diet of cornbread, butter, and milk, but still scorned the fatbacks once reserved for the slaves. For yeoman farmers, life slipped into one of desperate poverty. If women were supposed to suffer in silence, the impact was devastating on those who watched children become emaciated. Malnutrition seriously threatened the old, the young, and the ill. More turned to scavenging and challenging pre-war taboos. A Louisiana widow had to sell her husband's clothes to Negroes. Quote, it needs no comment, Cora Watson exclaimed. Nothing, not starvation, nor nakedness could excuse it. No words can more plainly express the horrible deformity of the act. The bare fact is enough, unquote. Civilian morale in the Confederacy rose and fell with news from the war front, but it plummeted whenever food shortages appeared. And anger rose, especially with the government's fiscal policy. The lack of actual coins and paper money made transactions nearly impossible. Women with relatives in the army, limited resources, large families came to see public officials as uncaring or hostile. As early as 1861, poor women, mostly soldiers' wives, began to petition Confederate and state officials for help. By 1863, all the states had adopted some form of public welfare, but had to do so by raising taxes that could not keep up with inflation. Individual states spent $10 million or more during the war on poor relief, and it wasn't nearly enough. And the Confederacy turned... Uh, turned to women to fit gover uh, fill government posts and factories needing every white man in the military. Women were employed in the Confederate War Department, the Post Office, the Quartermaster Department, and more. Females signed each of the hundreds of thousands of Confederate banknotes by hand. These jobs were a sort of government welfare distributed on the basis of gender and class, and the most privileged women received the de most desirable situations. By 1863 and 1864, women from all classes were writing to husbands at the war front that they had enough. Plantations were in ruins, slaves were running away, hunger was real, and for what? As northern armies advanced, bombarding towns, ransacking homes, foraging food stores, southern women became defiant. They expressed near universal hatred of the Yankee, but also became more aggressive in defending their terrains, demanding relief, and as we know, taking up weapons against their own government. In New Orleans, earlier on, female contempt of Yankee soldiers led Benjamin Butler, Butler to issue his infamous General Order Number 28, which declared that any woman who showed contempt for any officer or soldier in the U.S. Army would be regarded and treated as a prostitute. New Orleans women responded with fury, and many moved to, but many moved to more surreptitious modes of resistance. The economic impact of the war was a gender phenomenon in another way, as women faced 
not only deprivation and scarcity and exploitation, it also was a question of how it would shape the, the, the life cycle that they um, hoped to have. But whether in riots, angry letters to government officials, resistance to the demands of sanitary commission, women had to prioritize their labor and the needs of those dependent on them. They had to seek aid, whether in foodstuffs, money, or charity. While women were routinely portrayed as the providers of charity, calling up notions of women's benevolent instincts and caring natures, they were often in need of charity themselves. The war also altered women's personal prospects. We often think of war widows as something that emerges at the end of the war, but of course women became widowed throughout the war years. And even if they inherited their husband's property and a government pension, their lives were forever altered by a status few expected before becoming elderly. And throughout the Confederacy, more and more women knew they were facing lives as spinsters when such a large proportion of Southern men were dying. To assess the impact and experience of gender during the American Civil War, one must first identify the enormous change that happened to ideas about women in the decades before the war. The antebellum gender ideology, together with an elaborate racist ideology, had reordered the ways in which mid-19th century Americans understood human difference. Just as class was becoming uh, or beginning to emerge as the real defining uh, dividing line between people under the spread of capitalism, essentialist notions of gender and race became powerful constructions for delineating difference and asserting white male privilege. But locating legitimate political power in a masculinized and racialized body exposed the American body politic to all sorts of instability. If real women, in order to save that political entity, had to, keep, had to step in and demonstrate their ability to perform virtually all masculine work, what might that say about male preserves of power? Military conflict offered the most powerful antidote, of course, to any reordering of the gender system. Men at war waging violence and dying up the ante, if you will, of what constituted manhood. A dozen years before the Civil War broke out, a feminist movement emerged in the North that, while small, nonetheless created new paradigms for understanding women's labors, pol political capacities, and expectations about citizenship. Though only a small percentage of women identified themselves with the women's rights movement, most were aware, and particularly in the northern states, that the expansion of American democracy to all white men in the early antebellum era meant that women had lost political status for the first time on the basis of their gender. Prior to the expansion of suffrage, that's that shift from being a republic to a democracy, all non-propertied Americans were barred from voting. Now, women and African Americans were barred on the basis of gender and racial identities. The rise of ideologies about gender and racial difference set the stage for resistance movements articulated by African American radicals such as David Walker and feminists such as Elizabeth Cady Stanton. Further, the spread of capitalism also laid the basis for struggles over the meaning of economic and patriotic labors. And these would emerge full force during the war, whether in the contest over pay of colored troops, government requisitions for personal property, livestock, and land, or in the values of women's economic contributions to the military effort. Did they have real economic value, or were they just, again, emanations of instinct, so wasn't really work? The war compelled many women to articulate the value of their labor in ways they could not have anticipated. 
Women's rights activists demanded an end to the construct of a married woman that under coverture rendered women's political and legal disappearance into the identities of their husbands. They demanded the married women property rights, the right to divorce, and of course the vote. Once the Civil War began, however, feminists made a conscious decision to put their demands on hold, to join forces with abolitionist reformers to wage war against slavery and join with the government to defend the Union. The Civil War, a conflict of such enormous proportions, requiring the massive mobilization of civilian labor and resources, seemed poised to affect a radical transformation in society's assessments of women's work, women's nature, and women's consciousness. That it did not do so points to the magnitude of the threat of female equality. That women were excluded from the post-war extension of suffrage points to the limitations of even a revolutionary struggle for rupturing the gender hierarchy of 19th century America. Indeed, it might be argued that the triumph of the Union foreclosed possibilities for immediate female political progress. By militarily defeating the last rural resistance to industrial capitalism, American society secured in, many, in ways it may not have otherwise been able to do a legitimacy for its gender system as well as its economic and political institutions. But the war experience did alter the lives in which the way in which thousands or hundreds of thousands of women understood their labor and the bargain that had been struck on their behalf in the antebellum years. In the post-war decade, decades, numerous feminists identified women's exploitation in the home as the source of female subjugation. And through what became known as domestic or material feminism, they focused their efforts on, not on the vote, but on practical alternatives to the isolated nuclear households in which women labored. The language of spheres disappeared after the Civil War, sounding by then like an anachronistic and somewhat sentimental rendering of the war. In her magisterial history of women's suffrage, Elizabeth Cady Stanton, the intellectual powerhouse of 19th century feminism, concluded that the sacrifices, hardships, and labor that women accomplished during the war, quote, can never be fully appreciated, unquote. Reflecting that, as she wrote, quote, the untiring labors, the trembling apprehensions, the wrecked hopes, the dreary solitude of the fatherless, the widowed, the childless, unquote, were never measured, nor recorded, nor the subjects of public shrines, she suggested that all patriotic pageantry and the, quote, ever-shifting scenes of war were far easier to partake in than to take stock of women's national service. Here, Stanton offered a fascinating insight into why sentimentalized images of homefront women might have been so popular. The difficulty of American society to see what women did, the danger of recognizing their centrality in keeping homefront families and economies going, would have required a radical reordering of mid-century mentalities. Perhaps images of brave wives and rallying sweethearts, tender mothers and devoted nurses, um, offered psychic assurance that all was not lost of the pre-war world. This was a war that became a revolution, ending hundreds of years of chattel slavery and auguring new powers of the federal government. By 1868, black men won the vote, yet another moment when all women lost relative political status. Black women would join white women in knowing that full political rights were now solely defined by gender. Perhaps, too, serving up formulaic representations of noble women served to deploy gendered ideas about female caring in another way. The very image of the ideology may have been a curative, 
a way for those who had seen the horrors of war, who had experienced violence and loss, to feel the imaginary soothing hand of the mythical woman. Perhaps gazing at romanticized drawings of the brave wife and not the scrappy nurse, the devious spy, the cross-dressed soldier, rioting women or combative home front volunteers, invoke not just the sentimental but desperately needed sentiments. But it is also true that something ruptured during the war. The war provo provoked numerous gender crises that would reverberate in the post-war era. The ideology of separate spheres was ruptured, if not destroyed. Though essentialist ideas about women's capacities would endure for a very long time, that language was no longer evident after the war. At the basis of the rupture may have been the distance between idealized notions of womanhood and the real women of the Civil War. Thank you.